Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. The prevalence of autism has been increasing in the last few decades. That part is not news. And frankly, the reasons are many, one of which could be because of changing diagnostic practices. The other could be there actually are more cases of autism, or it may be both of them. I think that topic is definitely worth discussion on a podcast, but that should include many more experts than just me, epidemiologists and clinicians. But what I want to focus on this week is that it's also becoming clearer and clearer that autism itself as a diagnosis is changing. Even within an autism diagnosis, how someone with autism presents within autism is changing. And that's not something I'm assuming there's data on it, thanks to the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Network, or ADAM. This is the same exact network of sites around the country that do counts on the number of people with autism in schools. This means that the changing prevalence numbers could, in fact, be to the changes in the autism phenotype, but that's not what the study focused on, and I'm not going to jump to conclusions by saying that was the result. The study was led by Eric Rubenstein at UNC Chapel Hill. He collaborated with the sites that collected prevalence data for Adam. This time, they looked at co-occurring medical and psychiatric conditions in those eight-year-olds, and they looked at them in each cohort to see if there were more of them over time, less of them over time, if there were different types, more diverse types, basically what was going on. They didn't go into this with any particular idea other than to look at the co-occurring conditions. Now, they looked at different time points across surveillance years, 2002 to 2010, so this way they could look at change over time. And again, they used the same methodology in each surveillance year, so they can look at whether or not these co-occurring conditions showed an increase, a decrease, or no change. These years also coincided to when the prevalence numbers showed some of the more drastic increases. They had already known that there were more people with average or above average cognitive ability over these years. That's already been published. But what they haven't really looked at yet is how co-occurring conditions changed over time. They cast a wide net when they looked at quote-unquote co-occurring conditions, but then they grouped them into different categories. And these categories were, well, one, any. Two, developmental conditions like ADHD, language disorder, intellectual disability, general developmental delay, and then developmental delay in a number of different subcategories. The third was psychiatric conditions. These include OCD, oppositional defiant disorder, anxiety, depression, and other mood disorder, and psychosis. Then the fourth was neurologic diagnoses like encephalopathy, seizures, epilepsy, hearing loss, Tourette's. And then the fifth and the final was positive-causative conditions like tubular sclerosis, Down syndrome, and Fragile X syndrome. And I'll jump to the end. They didn't find any difference in the percent of kids who showed these genetic conditions over time. However, they did show that the frequencies of these co-occurring conditions increased slightly, and those were mostly focused on any developmental conditions and psychiatric conditions. Particularly for ADHD, this was the case. The thing about ADHD is interesting because early diagnostic practices actually discouraged a dual diagnosis of ADHD or an ASD, so you had to pick one or the other. The changes over time may have allowed for both of the diagnoses to be given. Now, that accounts for ADHD, but I'll get to the other changes in a minute. Now, that's the frequency of particular co-occurring conditions. What about the percentage of children with ASD and any co-occurring condition? 
those numbers increased significantly, like 44% in 2002 to 56% in 2010. This could mean that there are actually more co-occurring conditions happening in eight-year-olds with autism, or it could be because clinicians are feeling less restricted in giving co-occurring diagnoses. Now, again, I go back with ADHD. There's some specific data around suggesting that those diagnostic processes changed and that clinicians felt a little bit more comfortable giving a dual diagnosis. But with some of the other co-occurring conditions, that's not necessarily the case. There's really been no previous guidance on co-occurring conditions like anxiety, conduct disorder, language disorder, developmental delay, and mood disorder. The authors suggest that these comorbid conditions may provide greater awareness by clinicians of autism in some of the less severe presentations. So they may get referred to a clinician for a myriad of things that end up with an autism diagnosis plus a comorbid condition rather than the co-occurring condition itself. Remember, the data was pulled from those with autism, so everything was considered co-occurring or comorbid. Another study this week, and this is a different study, did look at comorbid conditions in adults. They focused on anxiety and depression, and they showed a high prevalence. And again, they didn't look at across time, but just one time point, quote unquote, in adults. But overall, they said that the lifetime prevalence of somebody with autism showing anxiety was 42% and 37% for depression. This was a study that did a systematic review. So they looked at what was out there across all sorts of different methodologies. Adam had the same methodology used in each particular year. So these are really apples and oranges. One of the other interesting things they found is that the rate of depression was lower in those with an intellectual disability. Now this may be a measurement issue. Measuring depression in those who are intellectually disabled may be difficult. I'm not explaining this to you for you to compare it against Eric Rubenstein's study. I'm just trying to tell you that depression and anxiety are two issues that clinicians already know are problems in people with autism. I'm going to add the link to the systematic review, which is actually really great at the end of the podcast summary. It also talks about the different forms of anxiety that were measured and tries to discuss the differences between the studies that were included in the systematic review. Another study this week looked at comorbid hoarding. Now, hoarding is usually associated with obsessive compulsive disorder. 7% of that sample showed severe forms of hoarding, and 34% showed moderate levels of hoarding. Now, this, again, is much higher than the general population and hasn't really been studied that well. My point is, if you looked at someone with severe hoarding, how many of them would have autism? Now, that's kind of a good question, but a topic for a different podcast. My point of discussing all of this is to show you that these comorbid conditions may actually help define different subgroups or phenotypes of autism. We're always talking about the heterogeneity and what makes people with autism different. Well, comorbid conditions is probably one of them. There were also no differences in the Rubenstein study across racial and ethnic groups. Now, that was kind of surprising, but okay. There were for females. Now, get this. Females showed more co-occurring conditions than males. The authors suggest that females with autism were actually more likely than males to be identified when presentation is more severe, meaning more co-occurring conditions like intellectual disability or that females are getting referred to problems later than males and clinicians are giving those non-autism diagnoses like anxiety and ADHD to try and explain the symptoms. 
Now, hopefully this changes. What autism looks like is changing. We already know that more and more people with average to high cognitive abilities are being included in the autism diagnosis as compared to decades ago, and now they're showing more comorbid co-occurring conditions. It's impossible for the Rubenstein study to figure out what the most debilitating part of the multiple diagnoses are for these kids. Are co-occurring conditions part of the autism, or are autism features part of these co-occurring conditions? Does anxiety in some people manifest itself so intensely that they show features of autism? Autism has become such a catch-all that I think sometimes society forgets that it's only part of a myriad of issues that lots of people deal with. They are all debilitating, and nobody is getting the right help if the wrong disorder is being treated. Thank you so much for listening this week. I'm thrilled that next week we'll be having a conversation with Claire Harrop from UNC Chapel Hill, who's doing some amazing studies on girls and boys with autism. The results of these studies might, now might, be able to not just understand girls and boys better, but also diagnose girls better. Talk to you then.